Welcome to the Pandemic Tech Podcast, bringing you the untold story of public health workers and technology entrepreneurs leading the field of pandemic response. I'm your host, Tavia Gilbert. In today's episode, we explore the role of Pandemic Tech's friends and colleagues in disease surveillance. Dr. Britta Lassman, Dr. Philip Abdelmalek, and Dr. Oyewale Tomori, disease surveillance experts who safeguard global health security and help prevent the spread of infectious disease. Disease surveyors are public health experts who collect, analyze, and interpret enormous amounts of health data. And like sentries on watch guarding the gate, they alert our healthcare first responders when infectious diseases threaten. They mine health information from wherever it's available, formal sources like clinical data or news reports, and informal sources like blogs, social posts, or even individual personal eyewitness accounts from health workers on the front lines. And when the alarm needs to be sounded, disease surveyors turn to places like ProMed, a social media site where public health experts can report outbreaks of illnesses of unknown origin, report new clusters of known infectious diseases, or break health news. Like this, the very first ProMed report of what would soon become known worldwide as the coronavirus pandemic. ProMed alert, December 30th, 2019, one minute before midnight. Hubei Province, China. Subject, request for information, urgent notice. Wuhan unexplained pneumonia has been isolated. Test results will be announced as soon as available. First report that was sent out on ProMed was sent on December 30th, 2019. And that was sent by Dr. Marjorie Pollock, who is our ProMed subject matter expert who is based in New York. She was notified by colleagues in China and then picked up signals on Chinese social media that very much reminded her of SARS and composed a very detailed report that went out on ProMed on the 30th of December. I think it was close to midnight when she hit the send button. That's Dr. Britta Lassman, Program Director of the International Society for Infectious Diseases, or ISID. She's also the director of the ISID project ProMed, where that December 30th alert was first published. And that was considered to be the first detailed report on what was happening and also triggered some of the international investigations and really alerted the international infectious diseases community. So at the time when she sent it, I was actually skiing in Austria. And I remember because of the time difference, I saw it when I had breakfast in the morning. And Marjorie is really well regarded in that space. And she is a true subject matter expert. So it's always worrisome when you read something like that from someone who has so much experience in that field. And so I remember I was like, oh, we will keep watching that. Hopefully it won't be SARS again. And, and that's how it all started and then continued to evolve. ProMed was the first notice of COVID for many public health officials all around the world. Philip Abdelmalik is a team lead at the World Health Organization's Health Emergency Information and Risk Assessment Department and the leader of a disease surveillance project, Epidemic Intelligence from Open Sources, or EIOS. He read that December 30th, 2019 ProMed health alert at WHO headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland. 
at 3 a.m. UTC on the 31st of December, 2019, the EIOS system picked up a news article that talked about a pneumonia cluster in Wuhan. And within hours, there were actually several other news articles that came in. And then a ProMed alert triggered then a whole series of actions. And that was coupled with communication with the WHO country office for China. Within hours of Dr. Pollock's first alert, infectious disease experts had already begun to respond. And soon, ProMed broke news about what actions were already underway. December 31st, 2019. Wuhan hospitals convene for an emergency symposium. 27 cases of viral pneumonia reported, seven patients critically ill. China Business News confirms the veracity of the reporting. South China seafood market has seen patients with pneumonia of unknown cause, one after another. All medical institutions should strengthen the management of outpatient and emergency departments. At present, related virus typing, isolation treatment, public opinion control, and terminal disinfection are underway. A whole collection of the collaborative efforts that built the system, the information coming into the system, and the community of practice right at the center and the communication that happened. And of course, the formal process that then kicked in with WHO connecting with the country office of China, the exchange of information and everything that then transpired after that. And all of that happened within a matter of hours on December 31st, 2019. Until I met Pandemic Tech and its disease surveillance partners, I had no idea that there was a worldwide infectious disease surveillance network. But it's out there, with experts on the ground and online, tracking information and broadcasting urgent health alerts ProMed, one of the world's major surveillance hubs, was founded in 1994, but the surveillance specialty in global health security predates the internet. So the traditional disease surveillance collects information through what we call traditional channels, meaning from clinicians in the hospitals or from microbiology laboratories. These are diagnoses that are confirmed through testing and then get reported up the ladder through the public health departments of individual countries. Informal disease surveillance or digital disease surveillance, or some people call it innovative disease surveillance, is what ProMed does, meaning that we look at a lot of different sources. ProMed was really the first informal disease surveillance program in the infectious diseases space, and it really started as colleague-to-colleague email network where people from around the world sent each other observations about things that were happening. Now, when you look at it, ProMed has around 80,000 email followers, in addition, many many people who access the site daily to read the reports on the sites and then also social media followers. But it really grew into a global network that operates in multiple languages, in multiple regional networks, in addition to the big global network, and really has a good track record of success in identifying emerging infectious diseases. ProMed is a social media platform, but it looks nothing like Facebook or Twitter. On the homepage is a news feed and a world map with dropped pins identifying orange or red alert areas. Visitors can search posts or read updates from ProMed's 50 or so subject matter experts or subscribe to various email lists, such as one surveying emerging diseases, Spanish or Portuguese language posts pinpointing Latin American health threats, even one devoted to plant diseases or outbreaks among animals. 
Why not just focus on infectious disease that threatens humans? ProMed subscribes to the concept of One Health, which strives to achieve optimal health for people, animals, and the environment. And outbreaks like coronavirus, which is suspected to have made the jump from bats to humans at one of Wuhan's open-air wet markets, show the interdependence of the health and safety of all biological beings, whether human, plant, or animal. Despite the abundance of data available, and sites like ProMed bringing it into one social hub, information sharing remains a huge challenge in disease surveillance. What we have seen with COVID is that despite us living now in such a data-rich world, when it comes to outbreaks, and especially in the beginning of an outbreak where it would be incredibly important to understand transmission dynamics and the spread of disease, or during critical transition points like now with the COVID variants popping up, we don't have a lot of good data out there and it's very disparate and not organized, it's not shared properly. ProMed is part of the answer to a pervasive problem of disorganized global health information sharing. But ProMed isn't the only hub where disease surveyors can add information to a public open source health intelligence database. Part of what Dr. Philip Abdel-Malik's team at WHO is trying to accomplish is organizing the data from multiple sources, ProMed being just one, in a searchable, easily accessible format. My team is responsible for leading a global collaboration called EIOS, which is Epidemic Intelligence from Open Sources. And the open sources there refers to publicly available information. And it's really focused on how we build, strengthen, and evolve the public health intelligence function around the world. You know, that raises the question, what is public health intelligence exactly? And, you know, in its simplest terms, I would say it's our ability to get actionable insights from information. And so we're trying to see how can we tap into publicly available information and start to look at it maybe through a different lens that allows us to quickly identify, analyze, and assess potential threats so that we can respond sooner. And the idea is the quicker we can detect it, the quicker we can respond, the better the outcome and the more lives we can save, essentially. So we're really focused on how do we empower and enable public health experts to be better prepared for and to better respond to public health emergencies. Essentially, anything that is publicly available is information that we're interested in. People like Dr. Abdel Malik are interested in any non-identifying public health information, and anyone can submit any such information to platforms like ProMed. To do so, one only has to fill out an online contact form with an email address, subject line, and description, including any sources if you care to specify. It took my producer, not a medical expert, just about three minutes to sign up. And she didn't have to submit information, but she could have. Could that create a problem? Public health intelligence as a function of public health doesn't really care where the information is coming from. It's how do we get these actionable insights? What we care about is the veracity of that information. But so much data is being reported by so many people all around the world through ProMed and other sources, some of which potentially is being provided from inexpert laypeople. So how can leading health surveillance experts like Drs. Lassman and Abdel Malik trust that information? 
Haven't we all learned not to trust anything we see on social media? How is a source like ProMed different? How do people who turn to it for guidance about huge public health problems know it's reliable? Each of our subject matter experts has vast regional networks usually, and they are usually people that are well regarded and also trusted. This is where, in our experience, the subject matter expertise comes in. And I think this is what makes ProMed stand apart from some of the other digital surveillance systems that we have this extra layer of human experts who actually review each of those posts, all the information that comes in, and then decide depending on where it occurs and what the details of the diagnostics are, they decide if that should be posted on the ProMed network or not. The quality of ProMed's review process by human experts speaks for itself. Not only has ProMed broken reliable health news before other sources time and time again, but the data and analysis it's provided have proven their reliability, even when it's synthesized from a variety of traditional and unusual sources. I think the track record ProMed has with identifying many of the firsts, being the first one to identify MERS or the first one to identify SARS, one of the first ones to identify Ebola in West Africa during the West Africa Ebola outbreak, and now COVID-19 again, I think it has a track record of sending those alerts early. And we do hope as an organization that, of course, that triggers then outbreak investigation and response efforts across the globe. And ultimately, that's to the benefit of all the people. But what if bad actors intentionally sow distrust through deliberately reporting misinformation or disinformation to cause chaos or deflect attention from a government that wants to deny the truth or dock responsibility? Or what about rumors or bad information like a suggestion that injecting bleach could be a reasonable COVID remedy that make their way into these open source systems? Isn't having such an open system dangerous? Dr. Abdel Malik says, surprisingly, no. Even misinformation is important for us to know because that then leads to risk communication, better education, more education programs and health promotion programs. So in and of itself, misinformation can either be a public health threat. You know, if everybody starts drinking alcohol or ethanol because they think it's going to treat something, that's an issue for public health. But also it's a way for us to know what people are talking about so that we can get the right messaging across and understand how our measures impacting people in societies and you know what are they saying what is the sentiment and what can we do to get people on board because tackling something like a pandemic or any outbreak it's not a who thing it's not just a government thing it's a collective thing and we all need to be a part of it but how do health surveillance sites like promed respond to what they suspect is misinformation. So similar to what journalists need to do, you have to go back to your primary source. You have to make sure you understand where that information came from. And there are a lot of ways that can be confirmed. And again, oftentimes what ends up is that our subject matter experts reach out through the networks that we have on the ground to seek confirmation or more information on specific occurrences. They also have the option to, to say, listen, this is more of a rumor that we heard. There is something going on. We don't have a lot of confirmation yet. We are not sure what's going on, but we request information. So whoever is in that area or whoever has connections to that area, please 
send in additional information on what is happening on the ground. So I think there are a lot of ways to find that, but I think the truth finding is a huge part of ProMed and really something that our subject matter experts have to do a lot. So ProMed's human experts oversee the careful process of vetting reported information in the social media network. Another way is developing to mitigate the potential for misinformation to undermine health security. Developing, along with advances, in cutting-edge technology. We started a project last year trying to look at whether we can build some automated algorithms that learn over time the different patterns in articles to be able to say, this one looks like it's more political in nature, or this one looks like it's more clickbait or hate speech. You know, starting to try to get machine algorithms to help us with this labeling so that we can speed up and augment what the experts are looking at to say, you know, there were 10 other articles that had a similar pattern to them. And you said that those ones were misinformation. So maybe this one is too, because it's pretty similar. And then people can look at that and make a decision for themselves. But at least they've got some guidance based on historical analysis and the patterns and the text, etc. So that's an area we're still exploring. Despite developing tools like algorithms to vet the veracity of reported health news, it seems that the job of disease surveillance has become more complicated, with public health experts having to be doctors, detectives, and skeptical journalists. The job demands not just expertise in scientific data, but a multi-layered understanding of human communication, truth, and trust. Not just hard science, but human psychology. Medical experts like Dr. Abdel Malik, who studied not only biology, but in fact human psychology, have been long preparing to lead teams of doctors adept at managing the growing demands of the field of health surveillance. He doesn't face the challenges alone, but with a knowledgeable network of collaborators who ensure that the public health surveillance network itself can be trusted. I'm extremely fortunate in that I work with a very, not just cross-disciplinary, but also interdisciplinary team. So, you know, whereas I've got a background in a bit of psychology, human biology, epidemiology, and health informatics, I've got a colleague, for example, who's got a background in neurosurgery and technology. I've got people on the team with background in communications, several epidemiologists who also have training in teaching, for example, for adults. So that sort of dynamic allows us to really learn from one another. And so while each one of us brings their unique perspective together, we bring a better perspective. We've talked a lot so far about the importance of technology and the internet in advancing the field of health surveillance. But we've also come to understand that no matter how advanced the tools, without trust, communication, relationship, collaboration, and transparency, safety and security cannot be achieved. Long before the advent of these contemporary tools that modern disease surveillance now relies on, one world disease surveillance expert had already long understood the value of truth and trust, as well as the importance of people on the ground who knew how and where to pass along health alert information in their networks. My name is Soyewali Tomori. I graduated as a veterinarian, but never practiced for one day. 
I went straight from the veterinary school into a research lab in a human medical school. And most of the work I've done has been with viruses that cause human infection. Pandemic Tech Senior Advisor Oyewale Tomori is a virologist with over 50 years in the field, fighting against infectious disease outbreaks all over Nigeria. He served as the regional virologist for the World Health Organization Africa region. During that tenure, he encountered countless infectious diseases, including polio. I stayed with them for about 10 years, in which my main assignment was to establish a network for the polio eradication program. And that became a foundation for other networks, for yellow fever, for measles and other diseases. I was also the virologist for the African region, which meant that when there was Ebola in Kikwich, I had to go there. When there was yellow fever in Liberia, I was also there. If it was Mabog in Uganda, then we always visited there. Long before coronavirus came the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, Ebola is terrifying and deadly, damaging the immune system and organs, causing uncontrollable bleeding and killing as many as 65% of those infected. Ebola is transmitted through contact with the bodily fluids of an infected person, making it particularly dangerous for healthcare workers treating infected patients. Though rates of death from COVID are fortunately far lower, coronavirus has nonetheless been devastating. And television and radio news reports from the height of Ebola sound all too familiar to many of us who, over the past year, have felt the fear when we've heard similar news reports about what's going on in our own communities. The Ebola outbreak in West Africa is spiraling out of control. Tonight, a travel warning as the deadly outbreak of Ebola virus gets worse. Federal health... The Ebola virus is spreading rapidly in places like Sierra Leone, where Doctors Without Borders staff cannot venture outside this center to look for others who may be infected. Breaking headline right here in New York City. A young American doctor back from Africa raced to a New York hospital, and tonight it is confirmed. A new case of Ebola. This was the image Some of the technology employed by mid-career experts like Drs. Lassman and Abdel Malik may be, to world-renowned elder Dr. Tamori, revolutionary. But the value and vitality of a network of trusted experts is not new. In addition to the widespread awareness that Ebola was so deadly, Dr. Tamori credits the success of the nation's Ebola response to Nigeria's then-connected, communicative, collaborative public health network, and to a little bit of luck. Everybody praises us for 2014, the Ebola visit, but a deep analysis shows that we had, it's a measure of both luck and eventually we did something. Two things, everybody was scared about Ebola. Ebola was so frightening to everybody that you want to make sure you don't get it. So they tell you, don't breathe, you will not breathe you don't want to get Ebola. That was how bad it was. And the second thing? A serendipitous experience drove home to Dr. Tamori how crucial interconnected networks are in broadcasting urgent, wide-scale breaking health alerts, as well as gaining the support of key government decision-makers who are prepared to respond. Dr. Tamori tells the story, detailing how health surveillance warranted a warning to the government that an Ebola outbreak in Nigeria was imminent. The Liberian who came to Nigeria with Ebola, when he arrived, we are told the government that with Ebola in 
West Africa. And Nigeria being a hub, the chances of her getting cases was very high. But we were lucky. The guy who got it actually came in almost dead. <laughs> he was really sick. Yeah, and he was a diplomat. Because he was a diplomat, he had to go through what he called the diplomatic challenge, not amongst the crowd, the way the public goes to. But in the process of two security personnel taking the diplomat, Liberian-American Patrick Sawyer, through a diplomatic channel in the airport, the two people who followed him also got Ebola. It was a wake-up call that Ebola struck not only this well-connected, well-tracked, important person in transit from country to country, but airport security personnel as well. And even though that disease spread, spread that required immediate hospitalizations, was bad news, the chain reaction led to still another lucky break. The National Medical Association was on strike, so only private hospitals were open. At the time he came into the country, all the public hospitals were closed. And the only way he could go was to a private hospital, which again limited the chances of his spreading it in an outpatient clinic in a big, large hospital. So it was in this private hospital. Even with the infected man's high status as a diplomat, if that national strike hadn't ensured that he be admitted to a private healthcare facility, the Ebola outbreak in Nigeria might have turned out very differently. So it was in this private hospital. But even then, with Ebola in Liberia, for the first three or four days, nobody ever in the hospital thought that he had Ebola. Rather than Ebola, they suspected Sawyer had malaria. They actually took samples from him to go to a private laboratory. So you can imagine what could have happened if something had happened in that place. But after about three days, they then discovered that this may be Ebola. And then the country rose to the occasion. The government, again, as I said, the fear of Ebola went through all to the highest level. They put all the money, get everybody online, you know. And then Lagos State in particular, where the first case came, the state government did exactly what needed to be done. And then we got the community involved, especially with contact tracing. That was one of the success stories. And then we moved from state government to the local government level. So we got the local government staff who were able to trace the individuals. And then we monitored them regularly, you know, checking them for temperature all the time, all that kind of thing. And anyone that showed any fever or whatever, was put into the isolation ward immediately. So that way we were able to contain it. But then there was this emergency operation center, which was set up for polio. And then with that, they then to use that also for Ebola. That third stroke of luck, that an emergency operation center designed for polio could be repurposed for the Ebola response, made all the difference in response times for infected patients. Dr. Tamori's account shows the importance in infectious disease mitigation of strong networks of people at every level of the chain who share information and act upon it. And it underscores how imperative it is that expertise and infrastructure developed during the response to one crisis, such as polio, should not be dismissed or dismantled when that crisis has resolved, but rather sustained and built upon so that when the next crisis, such as Ebola, comes, communities are prepared to answer the call quickly. While Nigeria's Ebola response was successful, the country's response to coronavirus has been less so, because the infrastructure developed to respond to Ebola was forgotten or abandoned nearly a decade later, when it was COVID's turn. Soon after we were declared free of Ebola, 
Everything went back to normal. We went back to what we were doing before. All the EOC that we set up were dismantled. Uh, people went back and doing what they were doing. And so, well, maybe Ebola didn't come back, but I'm sure if it had come back to the country, we probably would have started again, held us skeleton running all over the place. That same thing happened. Nothing has remained sustained. Nothing has been sustained. Yeah, we did it to solve the problem, and as soon as that problem was over, we all went back home. Then this came, and it was like we had to scramble and start all over. And that's why my National Center for Disease Control had to build 90 laboratories, even though we dealt with yellow fever before, we dealt with Ebola, we dealt with Lassa, and yet all these years, we don't have the lab that would do that. And it's only during this COVID, we started building off. And that's the point I was saying that, don't call it success. It is catching up on the failure of the past. You were quoted in the New York Times saying that there were many stages of COVID, deception, denial, defiance, denunciation, disagreement, and finally, acceptance and action. And I hear you say that the infrastructure was not sustained, the practices were not sustained, but I'm not sure why that is. Why did it take so many steps for action finally to be taken? Is it just wishful thinking or is there some benefit somewhere to someone to deny and delay proper response? It's a combination of so many things. The issue of denial was stigma. My state cannot have that. Because they have been warned before to prepare who they didn't prepare. So lack of preparedness meant that when it came to your state and you have no way to answer it, you deny it. So that first denial came in. And then people then said, no, there's doubt. And then labs are not there, so they can't confirm. Finally, when you can't hide anymore, in Kano, for example, Suddenly, within a month, there are now like 20, 30, 40, 50 people being buried on, on a particular day. You can't hide that anymore. And then you have to accept that you have a problem. So each state was doing whatever you wanted. So there's no coherence, even at government level. The states were doing what they liked. Though Dr. Tamori points to the failure of the national government to respond appropriately to COVID, and to the greed of ineffectual local governments that seized the opportunity to accept COVID relief funding without a plan to ensure that it helped the people that needed it most, he still doesn't have any illusions that government is the solution to big infectious disease problems. Rather, it's citizens themselves who have the power to stop the spread. The government can and should facilitate the education of its people and offer guidance for how citizens can change their behavior to ensure the safety of their fellow citizens. But disease mitigation comes down to human psychology. And if the government doesn't manage that, the impact to the health of the community is greater than just the disease threat. I've always said, I think one of the errors that the government made was to think that COVID control was a government business. It wasn't. The virus doesn't move. It's people who move the virus. We did not focus on the people. It is not the head of state that is important in COVID control. It is me, you know, to make sure I don't get it and I don't spread it to somebody else. I don't think we got that message around to our people. And that's why for a long time, many people say, ah, we are telling lies, you know, we don't trust our government. When citizens lose trust in their government, stopping the spread of deadly diseases becomes an almost impossible battle. We see this in the United States and elsewhere, 
with citizens voicing their resistance to the very vaccines that can save their lives and the lives of people they care about most. Dr. Tamori experienced the animosity of fellow Nigerians toward polio vaccines. You have dealt with the impact of social norms in public health. You've been integral in eradicating polio in Nigeria, but you had to deal with that resistance and with the social situation of a lack of trust, which is very relevant to what's going on in both of our countries with COVID. Can you talk to us a little bit about overcoming those social obstacles to help dispense public health care with equity across many different factions or tribes? I think one of the greatest experiences was me getting involved with community activities. And anywhere there was any epidemic, we were there, especially in every part of the country. And I worked with different communities. Before I came, we would have this problem about boycotts of the vaccine because somebody said it had some anti-fertility drug and therefore it was brought by the Western world to reduce our population. And therefore they boycotted the vaccine. The approach of the WHO at that time was that, oh, vaccine boycotts can be dealt with on a global level. But Dr. Tamori knew it was a local problem. That is purely, basically a Nigerian problem. And you need to get to know the people. It is not the WHO director general coming from Geneva to come and talk to the people. They don't know him. Even the minister of health in Nigeria, they don't know him in the village where they are boycotting the DC. So the only person they know is the local leader. And therefore, solving that problem has to be at that local level. Because he was the one in the first place who told them, boycott this thing. And they looked at him as the leader, the knowledgeable. So if he says it, then he must be correct. And therefore, the person we have to convince is not the local man who is believing, but that man who said, don't take the vaccine. Dr. Tamori also recognized that no health expert could judge the response of communities to outside expectations, like the acceptance of vaccines, with judgment, criticism, or snobbery if they wanted to make any headway. Health experts who wanted to engage populations in their participation in health security needed to understand where those people were coming from. Don't come from your high horse. This is a problem for the people. And then you relate it and make it relevant to them. I'm not coming there as a virologist. I'm coming there that your children are dying of X disease or they are being paralyzed by polio. If you were my child, I wouldn't want it to happen to him. So I'm advising you along this line. And we sit down and talk with them. So you get down to the level of the people. You also understand that from where they're coming from. The leader who told them, don't take the vaccine. You want to understand him too. You want to lift him up and say, without you, we can't do this thing. So please come and help us. It's not as if you're looking down on them. So you get to that level. Then you bring your own experience. So personal experience then becomes something useful for them to see. And then they look at you, this man is now even bringing his own self, personal experience to me. And therefore it's easier to reach them and then talk to them and get things out of Experts like Dr. Lassman and Dr. Abdel Malik are networking communications, organizing the hubs where information is shared and how that information is vetted. They're working to improve the technologies that facilitate a robust response to infectious diseases. Other than those technological enhancements, what do leaders like Dr. Tamori advise 
for the next generation of health surveyors? How can they get ahead of the next outbreak? The solution is preparedness, getting ready for whatever. Unfortunately, sometimes we don't know how to prepare for what we don't know is coming. But whatever it is, we already know the pattern of how these things come about. And therefore, we can prepare. So therefore, it is not just the science of the scientists. It is also adding to your science, the social behavior that is going to around you. If the people's behavior are moving, if they are changing, and all those kind of things that will bring the possibility of new diseases, you should pad that into your preparedness. Dr. Tamori also recommends making a distinction between global and national preparedness. We talk quite a lot about global preparedness, but global preparedness is nothing without national preparedness. National preparedness is that little anchor in the chain of global preparedness. And when there's a weak spot, we have a problem. More emphasis should be placed on national preparedness. And I believe that every country has enough resources to prepare. If we spend our money well and have the proper priority, we have enough resources to prepare for the future and sustain our preparedness. That little bit of preparedness, of being able to prevent, being able to find out, literally to set up. We had all these things way back in the 60s and 70s. Then what happened to us? Because we abandoned preparedness and we followed on other things. So technology has made it much better now. And so things are changing and we must adapt our system you know, to prepare better. The way we move, the way we behave, going into new zones, virgin forests, activities we are taking. We must be prepared ahead of time. There's likely to be some problem and then get yourself ready. For it. So that to me is the way the national preparedness would be the core of what we should focus on. If prioritizing human psychology and national preparedness is Dr. Tamori's prescription, what is Dr. Lastman's outlook about where health surveillance needs to improve? So I think with more information being available online, with more and more information needing to be vetted by subject matter experts being brought into perspective, and also with the many changes we see, you know, like increased travel, increasing globalization, goods that are distributed globally, as well as changes in climate and some of the ecosystem changes we are seeing, we know that this will not be the last pandemic that we will experience. So I think the need for ProMed is bigger than ever. Our vision at ISID would be to make sure we have funds to facilitate, to bring our IT infrastructure into the 21st century and make the lives of our subject matter experts as easy as possible in vetting all the information that comes in. And that would be a big vision for us to make that possible. We asked Dr. Abdel Malik for his assessment of the worldwide response to COVID. Did existing infrastructure meet the needs of the nations suffering the impact of COVID? His response points to the importance of addressing not just the technology needs, but an opportunity for an improved response that takes human behavior and psychology into more thoughtful consideration. There is a lot to grieve, and we need to be thinking about how we're going to prevent this from ever happening again. What do we need to do now? What do we need to invest in? What do we need to communicate? And maybe what attitudes perhaps and behaviors need to change? Because it's not just about, here's a tech solution that's gonna solve all our problems. There's some real, I think, behavioral changes that also need to happen in society in terms of how we instinctively perhaps react to different kinds of information and what we do with that information. I see that COVID has raised the profile of the public health 
function and its importance. I think it has raised awareness of the need for interdisciplinary cross-sector collaboration. You know, it's highlighted that WHO can't do it alone. Governments can't do it alone. Governments need to engage their citizens. Citizens need to engage their governments. We need to engage together as international organizations with governments. So one message that I know our DG has repeatedly emphasized is this message of solidarity. So it's not all happiness and we're all working together, but I think it has highlighted the need for that. It has highlighted the need for better communication and transparency. When Dr. Abdel Malik looks to the future of health intelligence, he believes it will bring together the best of technology with the best guidance from human behavioral experts, those who weave into their public health responses virtues like collaboration, service to others, generosity, and teamwork. An idea that will be a game changer if we can get it going. It's essentially an evolving collaborative global ecosystem of connected information and solutions. So some of the things that we're seeing right now coming out of COVID, there used to be this saying, you can have my data, but only in an emergency. But of course, by then it's too late. So we need to find ways to facilitate that sharing of information before, during, and after. But we also need to find ways to link that information. Having at my disposal 100 different databases containing information is really not that useful to me if I can't look across them to see, okay, what does this actually tell me, either about something we already know or something new that we don't know. Being able to do that is critical and I think has been highlighted by the situation. And then also putting in place ways that allow systems to be built in a way that enables them to talk to each other more seamlessly and with that information layer. So again, we react, we build all these systems, and then we wonder how do we make them interoperable? How do we make them talk to each other? How do we create this mesh of modules or services that collectively come together so that the whole is bigger than just the sum of those parts? And so an ecosystem of information and solutions that evolve and grow with proper governance is something we've been talking a lot about. And it's going to be a challenge. It's a very ambitious undertaking. And it's going to require everything that we've talked about in terms of collaboration, disciplines, cross-sector, all those things. But, you know, stay tuned. We'll see how we go. And I'd encourage people to think about that. It's not about data hoarding. And it's not about who owns the data, but it's about collectively how much value do you think we could get? I mean, imagine if, imagine if we could just connect data elements around the world and be able to glean insights from that, how powerful that would be for prediction, prevention, response, and recovery. Pandemic tech plays an integral role in building the ecosystem Dr. Abdel Malik is talking about. And pandemic tech is bringing you this conversation, a story of cross-cultural communications and collaboration, of the importance of disseminating expertise and expert-vetted information, of social media serving society and making the world a safer place during a week when the United States is grieving the murders of eight people in Atlanta, 
six of them of Asian descent. Threats to our health and safety are largely influenced by the choices that human beings make. And human beings are also far more than we imagine in control of safeguarding the health and safety of themselves and others on a local and national scale. Over the last year, since the first reports of COVID in Wuhan, as we heard about at the top of this episode, acts of violence inflicted on Asians have increased exponentially, while the hatred, suspicion, and condemnation of Asian people have spread across the social media that you and I use every day. People of Asian descent have no responsibility for the spread of COVID. They didn't cause it, and they don't deserve violence because it originated within China's borders. So I find it encouraging, and you may too, listeners, to better understand how dedicated and courageous the people fighting the COVID-19 pandemic and other big infectious diseases are. Both the healthcare workers visibly on the front lines in hospitals and the lesser-known but no less important people like those experts we've met today who are working tirelessly to track and contain infectious diseases, wherever possible, who continue to be on watch for future outbreaks. I think it's significant that these doctors train in their own nations and serve professionally in host nations. Dr. Britta Lassman's journey has taken her from Austria to Thailand, Costa Rica, and the U.S. Dr. Abdel Malik from Cairo to Canada to Switzerland. Dr. Tamori from Nigeria to Liberia to Uganda and far beyond. The fact that these experts have gone around the world leaving the familiarity of their countries of origin to gain expertise within cultures not their own, then committed to applying that experience to global health responses at home and anywhere that needs them, demonstrates to me the exponential benefit of exposure to a variety of cultures. It also drives home the fact that allowing our social media and digital technologies to spread misinformation and bigotry unchecked is a choice. Sites like ProMed show how much good social media can offer when they prioritize fact over fear, collaboration over condemnation of the unfamiliar. Programs like ProMed and Epidemic Intelligence from Open Sources model how cutting-edge technologies can be of service to society, how they might safeguard health rather than making life even more threatening and dangerous. And the infectious disease experts leading the charge can serve as examples to us all of the best of human behavior. I looked up the guiding principles of ProMed and I found them very moving and unusual in a way. Transparency, service, commitment to unfettered flow of information, freedom from political constraints, availability to all without cost commitment to One Health, which is a beautiful vision. I think the space where ProMed operates, I think that people who are involved in that space, our community and the people who are engaged with ProMed, people who are interested in global health, these are, at least in my experience, usually people who are very keen on sharing information and really trying to contribute to a greater good and making the world a better place. In our next episode, we meet more people like Dr. Tamori, Dr. Lassman, and Dr. Abdel Malik, equally dedicated and courageous workers, 
Those in the field of biosafety and biosecurity, experts whose mission to keep other people safe is almost a spiritual calling. I am a very engaged person with my profession, and I am very passionate of all the things that I do. So if I have a goal and my objective is safety first, that means that I will need to transmit to the people that, 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 is, uh, that is working with me uh, this part of security. So for me, it was very important that they feel secure and then I can try to help other people, uh, perhaps in the field, perhaps in other places. We look forward to bringing you the full story in our next episode. In the meantime, if you like today's Pandemic Tech podcast, we'd be grateful if you'd follow us and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Those simple ways of supporting our program are a great help in reaching new audiences. This has been the Pandemic Tech Podcast. This episode written and produced by Katie Flood and Tavia Gilbert. Executive produced by TalkBox. Music by Alexander Filipiak. Mix and master by Brian Barney. Thanks for listening.